you either open it or turn it on, and we are in Hebrews. We are in Hebrews chapter 13, the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. We've been taking our time as we go through this book, and I'm so excited for this, this morning's message. I don't know about you, but I, I feel somewhat proud to be a Kiwi at the moment, to see our nation rally around an unspeakable act of terror. You know, I find myself wanting to call it what it is, the evil that's bound up in the heart of humanity. You know, I struggled to find a clear reference in the commentary over the past week about humanity's evil. The closest comment I found was this. It was someone said, we have come to understand the potential evil which resides in the inhumane among us. Interesting. I also find myself wondering what this will mean for followers of Jesus. On the one hand, our nation is currently passionate about the dignity of all humanity. This is fantastic. No person or race is better than any other. And any such action that would promote a distinction is out of place. And those who do promote such distinctions, well, then you're subhuman. You're beyond hope. You're shunned away. You're never to be mentioned. You're blotted out. You know, however good this desire is, it doesn't go far enough. The Bible tells us that every single person is created with dignity and is designed for relationship with their creator, who 2,000 years ago came into his created world as a baby. And he grew as a man, and he submitted himself to be killed on a Roman cross. And in doing so, he carried the full weight of divine justice against the evil that is in the heart of humanity. So that every single one who believes in him will not perish under that evil, but will have life and will have eternal life. I find myself wondering, in a society that now passionately pursues a desire to be good, to celebrate diversity, and oneness, and to be inclusive and non-judgmental, to be one. I wonder how the exclusive message of Jesus, even though it is the most loving and freeing message this world will ever know, I wonder how it is going to be taken in our day. And without surprise, the passage we're studying today, planned 12 months ago, speaks to that message. Hebrews chapter 13, starting at verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not benefited. We have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, 
Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing his disgrace. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience, wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. And I urge you all the more to pray that I might be restored to you very soon. Father, we pray that you would speak. Help us, Lord, to hear and to listen. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We have an altar. You realize that right throughout history, humanity has had altars. They are High places where gods are worshipped. They're high because they're prominent on the landscape. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament of the Bible, you see every society they talked about, the high places. Israel themselves had high places, altars, places where people worshipped. You know, everybody has an altar. Everyone has a high place because everybody worships something. You know, some of us simply worship ourselves. You know, there, there is nothing and no one higher in your life than you. We find in our society today that there is the worship of ideals. We, we worship on the altar of ideals, ideologies, the idea of acceptance or of love or of diversity. We worship at those altars. And then there are the religious altars. And for the Jews, which is the context of which we're reading today, the, the altar was the Jewish physical altar where they would slaughter animals as a sin offering. And that, that went something like this. The, the, the person, the Jewish person would come along and either conscious of their sin or just with that uh, catch-all I probably have, it might have been unintentional, so I'll offer up a sacrifice. They would bring this animal and they would slaughter it. And his blood would be taken to the holy place and would be sprinkled on the altar as a sin offering. And the life of the blood of the animal, the lifeblood of the animal, was in effect given to ensure that the life of the person offering the sacrifice would be acceptable to God. And the body of the animal was then taken outside the city wall and burned up. It was garbage, it was rubbish. And what that signified was that the, sin, the life was now appropriated to the person and the sin which was put onto the animal was thrown outside just like rubbish, never to be done with again. And it typified the way that sin had been passed to the animal and was carried away. Yeah, the great thing about this sacrifice is it recognized two very important timeless facts. The first one is this, people, all people, sin. And their sin needs to be dealt with. The second thing that it tells us is that only a divine edict can remove the guilt of sin and give true freedom. 
And the writer to the Hebrews is reminding these followers of Jesus that Jesus is the better way. That all that they had in the Old Testament was a picture, was a foreshadow, was a, was a, was a summary of what Jesus was actually going to do. And so it tells us in that moment there that he too suffered outside the gate. And his blood that was shed was sprinkled on that eternal altar, which means his life for yours and for mine. And when he was on that cross, all the sin, the evil that is in our heart, the righteous, just punishment of that, he took it. And he carried it. And he paid for it. And he did that outside the city like rubbish like nothing he became sin for us and because of that work we understand and we know that God therefore accepts us approves of us and so we come to an altar. That altar has a, has a name. His name is Jesus. And in his name and at his name we find forgiveness and we find restoration and we find healing and we find community. And that altar, that high place, Jesus demands an honest view of sinful self and an acceptance that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And that high place is a call. It's a call to follow him, to follow Jesus. And for the Hebrew believers, that following meant that they would likely be treated the same way Jesus was treated, as society's rubbish, as subhuman. Verse 13 says, Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. Highly likely they were viewed as disgraceful. Not worthy of a place in society. Subhuman. Just don't get it. It's no wonder then that they needed to know that this life is not all there is. They needed to know there was an enduring city. They needed to know that there was much more than what we have today. It's what I'd like to call out-of-place Christianity. Yeah, we've been brought up, most of us, in a society which you could say is somewhat Christian. There's some Christian ethic, I think. We would all agree that we're seeing that slip away. And Christianity doesn't have a front and center voice in our society anymore. Christianity is really out of place. I think we're needing to become comfortable by living in an out of place Christianity. And I wonder if we need to find ourselves wrestling with and actually becoming comfortable with the fact that if we do feel at home here, we're actually in trouble. Because this is not our home. There is a hymn which was ringing in my mind as I was preparing this rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Not my labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Religion will never get you there. All the stuff you do 
is worthless. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? It doesn't matter what I try and do, I can never actually bridge the gap. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Hmm. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. And while I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on my throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. If we feel confused and wonder how this will all work out, how do we do the Christian message with its exclusivity? that seems to fly in the face of current sentiment, I'd like you to remember this. It's actually not your work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Yeah, we live in a culture that is not so much interested now in in logical dialogue over facts. Rather, it's a navigation through emotions and feelings to come to a point of need that only the creator of the universe can fill. And so my question is, how do we engage in that type of conversation? And Sarah has already said, I am in awe of the timing of our conference in two weeks' time. Because I need to know, and you need to know, how to have those conversations. If we are to get close to doing what God wants us to do as followers of Jesus and reaching out to a world that needs him desperately, we need to know how to engage. So that's us. Followers of Jesus, out of place Christianity, feeling slightly uncomfortable. How do we do this? How do we live this life? How did they do it back in the first century? This is not new. If you actually, if you look throughout the history of humanity, the time we have been in has been the time which has been unusual. We're about to move, I believe, into a more usual expression of faith. And here's the, here's the linchpin to how we do this, and it's there in verse 13. Go, 13, go to him. Go to Jesus. When it all boils down to it, that's the message. Go to him. Fellow sinners saved by grace, fellow humanity, racked with evil, go to him because he is our altar and everything we do is in him and is through him and is for him. And there are three things I'd like to suggest to you which will keep us there and that is to have a sacrifice of praise, of good works and of obedience. Let's go through these together. It's in the last part of our text. Through him, therefore, verse 15, Let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. You know, I find that if I want to grow a great apple, I don't pour stuff on the apple on the tree. I put fertilizer on the tree. I find if I want to make sure that my apples are are healthy and and strong and and tasty, that it's not about what you do to the apple, it's about what you do to the root system, it's about what you do to the soil. And it's the same with us. If we're finding that praise is not coming from our mouth, it's not our mouth that's the problem. It's our soul. It's our heart. It's every part in us. I want to suggest to you that what comes out of your lips displays the character of the source. 
I wonder what's coming out of your lips these days. I wonder what goes across that filter called your mouth. You might say, well, gosh, if I think about it, there's not too much praise which comes out of my mouth. And I, I'm just, um, I have a little conversation myself now, so you can listen if you like. And that gets, yeah, there are times when it's just not so flash. You know, there are times when not too much comes out. It's like you just seem to be quiet. And when I look at that, I go, well, there's usually two reasons. The first one is this. I am not spending too much time getting God's word into my heart. Strange how that seems to correlate. When I put less of God's word into my heart, I find there's less praise that comes out of my mouth. You'd think after 50-something years, I was 53 yesterday, happy birthday to me. You'd think that after 53 years... I realise I don't look a day over 52. You realise after 53 years, you'd actually get that, wouldn't you? When I find that praise is drying up, and I, I, I know that it's about putting the word into my life, you'd wonder. The other thing I find too, a couple of other ones, first one, next one is this, I find that if I'm not thinking through God's word, like I can read it, but I'm actually pondering God's word throughout the week. Am I thinking about it outside of when I'm reading it? When I'm, my praise is drying up, I'm finding I'm not usually thinking about God. I'm thinking about a whole bunch of other things. Other things I find, I find if I'm not praising God, is there some sin in my life which I just haven't dealt with? It's amazing how they rob praise, and yet the Bible tells me if I want to stay close to Jesus, let praise continually come out of my mouth. How are you going? How are you going? Yeah, there is an incredibly holy spot in this building. It's right there. Because that's where I sit. Now, it's not holy because I sit there. It's holy because I've lost count of the number of times God's wrecked my heart again and again and again and again. Because I can come in here as cold as a, as a dead fish and I can find that the Holy Spirit will just all of a sudden touch me with some truth as Josh or somebody is leading us in worship or some of you pray out and it's like in that moment the Holy Spirit goes and you're back. And praise starts to come out of my mouth. I wonder when that last happened for you. Like, you know, that's my holy spot. Now, that's not an exclusive spot. If you wanted to sit there, you're more than welcome, right? You all have your own exclusive spots. You're sitting pretty much where you sit every week. I know we're all, you know, creatures of habit. You're here. And that's so important. It's interesting, isn't it, that praise fixes our eyes on him. And praise takes our eyes off ourselves. And praise lifts him up and lowers us down. And praise beats back the enemy of our soul. I want to tell you that if you're, if you're under the pump, if you're under battle, praise him. If you're saying, man, there is so much going on in my life, I want to suggest to you one of the most powerful things you can do is say, Jesus, I choose to praise you. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Speak to my soul. I will praise him. And watch the enemy defeated. Stay close to him. Stay close to him. Secondly, the sacrifice of good works. Don't neglect to do it as good and share for God is pleased with such sacrifices. We're not going to spend any time on that except to say this, that you do good works to other believers and to everybody else in the world around you. And we keep doing those things relentlessly, endlessly. We're constantly doing that. The third one is this, which is, the sacrifice of obedience, obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls. And you might say, this is an interesting one for you as a leader to do. What are you going to say about that? Well, here we go. 
Whereas to obey is to allow oneself to be persuaded, then follow. If you're going to obey, you're going to say, you're going to weigh up, you're going to allow yourself to be persuaded. And that's important because we find in our society that people often don't allow themselves to be persuaded, they entrench. And they'll come to a situation and they'll say, nope, I know what I know, and it doesn't matter what you say or what you do, I've already made my mind up. That's not obeying. Yeah, we live in a world where the attitude towards leadership is largely cynical. The default tends to be that the leader's wrong. Yeah, I am a brilliant rugby player. Armchair version. I sit in the armchair and I, I know why Bowden Barrett gets it wrong when he gets it wrong. Right? I, just, I watch the lines he runs and I just know that if only he had moved like half a metre sooner, I would have, you know, I, I am brilliant in my armchair playing rugby. I think a lot of us are brilliant armchair leaders. And I think we shout from our armchairs against your life group leaders, against our ministry leaders, against church leaders. Because we know better. Because we sit in the comfort of our armchair without actually having the weight of the leadership and we say, I could tell you how to do it and what do you think you're doing? These leaders, they keep watch over you. They watch like wakeful shepherds or those who are nursing a critical case in the interest of your soul. A good friend of mine a couple of weeks ago was in the hospital and when he was in the critical stage of his care, we went up to see him and there he was in, in the unit and there were nurses that were there constantly watching him. Watching for every move, movement, every moment of his health to make sure that he was doing okay. That's the same sense at which leaders in the church are called to shepherd the people under their care. If you're a life group leader, you've just realized the stakes have gone through the roof. It's true. If you're a kids ministry leader, you're watching over the kids, the massive, the youth ministry. That's the call of biblical, spiritual, shepherding leadership. This is done under the constant pressure that one day those leaders will have to render an account to the chief shepherd, to Jesus Christ himself, on how they've taken care of the sheep. When Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said, watch over yourselves and watch over the flock that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit has come and he said, I'm going to entrust some believers to you, Mrs. Leader. I'm going to entrust them to you so that you can watch over them, that they would continue to grow and continue to be healthy. And by the way, if ever you have a sense of entitlement, you need to know this, I paid for them with my own blood. And one day, they're going to stand before me, and you are going to stand before me, and I'm going to ask you how you did serving them as their leader. Anybody want to sign up for leadership? And God raises up leaders. Ephesians 4 tells us that leaders equip the church to minister. And all throughout the New Testament, leaders and elders and shepherds and overseers, there are many terms for the leadership. And to be appointed in every town, that's what the apostles did. And those leaders equipped through the teaching of God's word and they care through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and they follow Jesus as he builds the church. 
In contrast to the world, there is a better way, a Jesus way. That we as followers of Jesus who are being led will allow ourselves to be persuaded and to obey and submit to our leadership. You know, the idea of submission is, is one, if you imagine building a bridge over, over, over a chasm, and you have the road, and that's sort of the, the roadway, but underneath it you've got these trusses, and they hold up the road. When you come to this idea of submission, it's those trusses. It's coming together to say, we have a common vision. Our heart is captivated by a common call to reach people for Christ. And as we do that, we will submit ourselves to the leadership which is equipping us to ensure that every single one of us will play our part to make a difference and reach people for Jesus Christ. That's leadership. And it demands humility on our part. Because if we spend all of our time and energy challenging the point, nothing ever gets done. You know, if we don't do this, there are two results. The first one is this, grief for the leader. Makes sense. Second one, which is interesting, it's costly for you. You lose, you miss out on the plan and purpose God has for your life. And in verse 18, the writer to the Hebrews <laughs> sums it up quite nicely by saying, pray for us. I want to suggest to you this, leaders need all the help they can get. One uh, commentator once quipped, he said, if the church wants a better pastor, it only needs to pray for the one it has. Thanks. We live in interesting times. Incredible opportunities. Equally incredible challenges. What's the message? We have an altar. His name is Jesus. Trust him. We have an invitation. Go to him. Don't go to anything else or anyone else. Keep going to Jesus. And you'll know that you'll be doing that when you praise him and when you serve him and when you submit to him. Let's do that together. Would you stand? We're going we're gonna to worship. We're going to praise him. We're going to take these next few minutes to, to be led in song and and I encourage you in this moment to take the opportunity to, to align your heart with his. It may be for you that there is just, as you borrow the words of the song, there is a proclamation that will come out of your mouth that's stronger than it's been for a while. It may be for you that there is there's something that the Holy Spirit has just put his finger on, an attitude, a thing which is going on. I say, man, I've got to get that sorted. Do it right now, there's freedom. Do it in Jesus' name and spend that time looking at him in all of his glory so that as you walk out the door, you walk into a world that needs you to be in love with Jesus, that needs you to be filled with his Holy Spirit, that needs you to be part of a team, not just some individual thinking, I don't care about anybody else, but needs you to be a part of the team, this wonderful body called the church. The world needs you to be that. Let's worship him. Let's worship him with everything we have.